I guess just a quick review from two weeks ago. The last couple of lessons, we've been talking about the time from the Davidic covenant until the arrival of Christ and how the expectation of the people began to build that there started to be a lot of, um, you know, when the when the Davidic kings failed, especially when the kings were wicked, when judgment was coming on the people, and the prophets were constantly warning of judgment, and finally the people were exiled from the land, there started to build this anticipation of another king who was going to come, who was going to bring restoration of the throne of David, who was going to bring the people back into the land, who was going to restore the glory of the kingdom, who was going to be this suffering servant. Remember last time we talked about the agreement between God the Father and God the Son, how the Son was going to come as a servant, become incarnate, die for his people. The Father was going to help him in this task, was going to resurrect him from the dead, and was going to give him all the nations, all the earth as his inheritance, his reward for completing this work. So tonight we're going to finally get into the new covenant itself. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given to us, Lord. We thank you that you continue to bless us with opportunities to be in the word. And Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary of it. Lord, I pray that we would never feel as though we've gotten enough of your word or we've gone deep enough into it, God. I pray that there would always be more for us to digest, more for us to pour ourselves into, Lord God, so that we would know you better and we would know your plan of salvation better and your expectations for us and your promises, Lord, all these glorious things that change and control the way that we live our lives. Lord, I pray that we would study them carefully. God, give us wisdom tonight. I pray that your spirit will be with us, Lord, that he may guide us in understanding and then an application of the truths that we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So tonight is going to be another night where we're going to be flipping all over the place. Um, so just be ready for that. So we're beginning to talk about the new covenant and as was the case since Abraham, the people of God were operating in the context of the old covenant. Um, those promises of offspring, the land of Canaan, kings, uh, God's dwelling among the people and the expectation of a coming blessing to the nations. That's the context that God's people have been operating in since um, the since the time of Abraham, and so all the way now as we get to the beginning of the New Testament. So remember, the people have been kicked out of the land by God, but then during the exile, during that time of judgment, God promised them they would return to the land, that they would rebuild the temple. So all of that has happened. People are back in the land of Canaan. The people have rebuilt the temple, but it's not the same as it was under David and Solomon. Remember several weeks ago, we talked about the consummation of the old covenant when Solomon built the temple and every promise of God had come to pass. It was a golden age for Israel that was as, that was as glorious as the old covenant was ever going to get when Solomon built the temple and consecrated it and God's 
holiness filled it. And so even upon returning to the land, the people had these great expectations, but it wasn't that kind of glory. They were under the rule and under the authority of the Roman Empire, so they didn't have true autonomy or authority. They didn't have that strong king reigning on the throne. And yet, they were still trusting in those promises that God had made, even during the time of judgment through the prophets. We looked at Isaiah deeply, and how throughout Isaiah especially, but with Ezekiel as well and some of the other prophets, there's this promise that not only are they going to return to the land, but it's going to be better than it was before. And you have all this imagery of kind of the future glory of God's people. And so the people were still expecting the renewal of David's throne, the restoration of glory, kind of going back to the way that it was under David and Solomon. And so they were holding out the hopes and the expectations of those promises that are rooted in Abraham, of the land and the kings and all the rest of it, that are um, kind of marked by their circumcision, that's elaborated on by the prophets. That's what the people were hoping in. And all of that suspense building up was just multiplied because for 400 years there was no word from God. There was silence from the prophets. Um, at the close of Malachi, um, after that, there's a 400-year span where there's no word from God given to the people. And so the suspense continues to build. And then during that 400-year period of silence, the Babylonian Empire falls, the Persian Empire falls, the Greek Empire falls, and the Roman Empire arises. And based on some biblical prophecies, especially in the book of Daniel, the expectation of God's people was kind of at a high point at the time right before Jesus' incarnation because the people knew that it was about this time, after these empires had, gone, had come and gone, that this new kingdom, this restoration was supposed to come. And so there's all this suspense and anticipation that's kind of been built up over generations and generations. And it's in this context that we have John the Baptist arrive on the scene. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. That's where we'll start out tonight. Um, so like I said, the people's expectations have been building for generations. They're waiting for this return to glory, for this servant, this Messiah who's going to come. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the wilderness, you have John the Baptist um, Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So you have the ministry of John the Baptist. Um, arriving out of nowhere, and he comes proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that now is the time of uh, consummation, of restoration, that this is the, that the time has finally come where all of these promises, all of these expectations were about to be fulfilled. This is the first word from God in generations, and it's an announcement that the time of fulfillment had come. Matthew, um, 
quotes Isaiah 40 in describing John the Baptist's ministry, that this is the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. Um, in that passage, if you go back to Isaiah 40 and you look at it, that is a passage of um, kind of a promise of renewal, um, of restoration, of mercy that was about to come for God's people. And so John the Baptist comes fulfilling that promise that he is a herald of this period of mercy, of all of these promises now finally coming to their climax, coming to their fruition. And he came to prepare and to purify the people for the arrival of the Lord. He came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was one who was to prepare the way, to make straight the paths of the people for the arrival of the Lord. So John is announcing an era of the fulfillment of these promises that were um, foreshadowed by Israel, all of that now coming to pass. And he's telling the people to prepare, to get ready for it, for this arrival of the Lord. And there's kind of like an interesting phenomena because in the prophets, when they would speak about the day of the Lord or the day of God's visitation, that was often associated with wrath, that this was a day of judgment, that God, when he came for this day of visitation, he was going to visit judgment on the people for their disobedience. But then also you have parts of the prophets saying that the day of the Lord is this day of restoration and of mercy and of renewal and glory and all the rest of it. And that's the reason why um, John is calling the people to repent. This is why there needs to be this forerunner before the Lord comes who says, get ready because the day of the Lord is at hand. He called the people to repent and to be cleansed. And when we talk a little bit later about the judgment on the people of Israel after their rejection of Christ, you're going to see kind of the other side of the day of the Lord. But he was calling on the people to make themselves ready. That now is the time that God, the day of the Lord, the king is coming. And so you need to be prepared for this because you don't want the king to show up and you be found unprepared, just like Jesus is going to talk about in his parables that the servants were, you know, going, being wicked, beating the other servants, and they didn't know that the king was about to come, and then he comes in judgment. But we're going to get to that in a few weeks. But that's the reason why John came to prepare the way, so that the people could be cleansed and could be ready to receive the Lord. And actually, turn back to Exodus 19, because there's a great parallel here. Um... And so you know Exodus 19, it's right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, right before God descends on Mount Sinai, and um, right before he comes and um, constitutes the Mosaic Covenant with the people. He comes and he gives his law, and he's about to make this uh, covenant with the people. And if you look at Exodus 19, beginning in verse 9, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, 
Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And so what you have going on there in Exodus 19, before God gives his commandments, you have God saying to Moses, give the people three days, tell them to get ready, tell them to cleanse themselves and to prepare themselves, because in three days I am coming, I'm going to come dwell among the people and make this covenant with them, and so they better be prepared for that. They needed to make themselves clean before God's day of visitation under the threat of judgment. And that's why no one was able to come and even touch the mountain. Not even an animal could touch the mountain or else there would be judgment. Nobody can appear before the Lord in a state of uncleanness. And so it's interesting. John the Baptist is kind of paralleling what happened there on Sinai, telling the people, get ready, get clean, because God is coming. The day of the Lord is at hand. The kingdom is here. Um, Do you guys have any questions so far? Anything on that? And so you have John proclaiming, repentance, preaching repentance, the kingdom is at hand, and then he's baptizing people. And this is also something that's extremely interesting and, you know, obviously it, you know, caused a big stir with the religious leaders of the day. They didn't like John the Baptist. They didn't like his message. They didn't like that he was baptizing. And part of that is that baptism was not an ordinary cleansing ritual for the Jews. Uh, Typically, It was Gentiles who were converting who would undergo baptism as a sign of those unclean becoming clean, right? Because if you were a Jew, you were circumcised, and so you were already set apart before God. And so it was the Gentiles who had to go through this kind of ritual. And yet John was calling for the Jews to be baptized. And so this is a really radical Uh, proclamation, a really radical act of John to baptize Jews, and it should have been a clue that while Jesus' arrival, the arrival of the Messiah, the servant, the king, was foretold and was proclaimed, it's been anticipated, that what was going to come was going to be something new and something unexpected. It wasn't going to fit into the paradigm that the people had in their minds. And so the, the king who was coming was going to establish a kingdom that was going to be something that was entirely different than just restoring the throne of David. That this is not like, you know, this activity that John was engaged in was nothing like what Israel had seen before. And that should have told them something, that this king who was coming wasn't just another David. This is going to be something new, something different, and something better than what Israel had experienced in its history. Um, Turn over to Mark chapter 1. So John the Baptist comes. He proclaims to the people the kingdom is at hand. It's time to repent. It's time to be baptized. It's time to be prepared because the kingdom is here. The king is come. And Jesus, when he arrived on the scene, he came preaching the very same message Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so you have Jesus 
proclaiming the same message that John proclaimed, repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom is at hand. He comes saying that with him has come the arrival of this kingdom. He is the one who has been expected and anticipated, and he has come to um, establish this kingdom, and he calls the people to repentance and faith in the message that he's preaching. And Jesus' whole life would be a demonstration that what he came to establish is something new and something better than the old covenant. His whole life and ministry show that to us. And so we saw a few weeks ago um, how Jesus explicitly applied some of those servant songs, those prophecies to himself. You remember Jesus when he preached in Nazareth and read from Isaiah chapter 60 that, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has appointed me to go and to preach the good news to the captives and to, you know, set liberty and to open the eyes of the blind and all the rest. And Jesus said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus explicitly applied to himself those servant songs and that mark that he was the one who was going to bring this restoration, who was going to set the captives to liberty, proclaim the day of God's um, jubilee, who was going to um, open the eyes of the blind and do all of these glorious, merciful, restorative things. Um the, the restoration that God had promised was going to be brought through him. So in his preaching, Jesus is explicitly applying these prophecies to himself. And what I want us to kind of see tonight is that Jesus in the new covenant is perfectly both born out of the old covenant, and so it's foreshadowed and foretold, but it's also something that's new and that's different. And you can see that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus um, expresses and emphasizes the newness of what he's doing. In Matthew 9, beginning in verse 14, the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So Jesus is emphasizing the newness of what he's doing. So they come, ask him a question about fasting, and Jesus, first of all, answers it by saying that, essentially, as the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, because Jesus has come and has fulfilled all these promises, fasting is a discipline and a sign of kind of expectation and longing. It's to express that we are patiently and uh trustingly waiting on God to fulfill his promises, to supply the needs that he says he's going to supply. And so it, it, it highlights that, you know, we're 
kind of in this period of waiting and expectation and trust in the Lord. That's what fasting signifies. So Jesus, first of all, is saying that his arrival is not a time for fasting. It's not a time for anticipation of God fulfilling his word. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. And so his time was a time for feasting and celebration and joy and rejoicing, not of fasting. But then secondly, even though Jesus is fulfilling the old covenant, Jesus' ministry, his work, and everything that he's doing is born out of the old covenant, it's inherently different. And he says that, um, he, he used the analogy of the wineskins. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. That you can't take what Jesus was doing, his work, and try to cram it into the old covenant paradigms. Jesus is doing something new, something better, and something that needed to be thought of differently. And so to try to put Jesus' ministry into the paradigms of the old covenant wasn't going to work out. It doesn't fit them. It's new wine that requires new wineskins. And so you see it there. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant, its promises and its expectations. And he is also, in his life, doing something and establishing something that's new and that's better than the old. We also see this in the miracles of Jesus' life, especially when you think about the healings, you think about you know his feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 and all those um, miracles that Jesus performed, um, all of those testified to the renewal and the restoration that was being brought about by Jesus. And if you think just about the sheer amount of Christ's miracles, I know that sometimes when we read the scripture, you know, some people will say, oh, there's miracles on every page or, you know, because we know so well the Exodus and, you know, some of those great miracles, we can think that, oh, these, you know, God was doing miracles all the time back then and now he's not doing anything. But really, there are so relatively few miracles when you think about the thousands of years covered by the Old Testament, I mean, you have the period of Moses and the Exodus, and then a little bit of a sputter with Elijah and Elisha, some of the stuff with the judges. But for the most part, you know, it's business as usual in the Old Testament with God. Jesus arrives, and he is doing these incredible miracles constantly. I mean, in the Gospels, you have Jesus staying out all night healing people all day night all day long and all night you have massive crowds of people following him because he's working these miracles jesus calls them out on it saying you're not following me because you care about what i have to say you're following me because you want more food you have you know this incredible period of of miracles performed by jesus and all of this was entirely different from anything that Israel had experienced in its history. This isn't just another prophet. This isn't just another king to sit on the throne. This is something different. And the miracles themselves were a preview of the ultimate nature of the kingdom that Christ was bringing. So Jesus came saying, the kingdom is at hand. It's here. And he was showing the power of the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom in his miracles by you know, healing diseases and, and, you know, feeding the hungry and, you know, all these things that Jesus was doing in his life and ministry, that was testifying to the nature of this kingdom. And it was a preview that ultimately what was 
what was going to happen with this kingdom is the full reversal of the fall, the entire reversal of the curse of sin, every effect of sin turned back. That was the kingdom that Jesus was bringing, not just the Davidic kingdom where the people dwelled secure in the land of Egypt, where they were safe from their enemies and they were in a fruitful land and they had a lot of crops and were prosperous, but this was a kingdom that was going to completely renovate, reorder, restore all of creation. And so the miracles of Christ testifies to that. You also have in Jesus' ministry the phenomena of these uh, demons constantly being cast out. That's another hallmark of Jesus' life. Everywhere he's going, it seems, he's casting demons out of people. Uh, turn over to Luke chapter 10. And what this indicates, Jesus, um, with this authority over the demonic realm, it indicates um, the light now coming into the world to dispel darkness. You have Jesus going around and exercising his authority over the spiritual forces of darkness, casting out demons. And then in Luke 10, verse 17... This is after Jesus had sent his disciples out ministering. They come back. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And so you have Jesus... Um, expressing and in his ministry demonstrating this power of this light that has come into the world. And you have to understand that before the time of Christ, it was just darkness over the earth. Besides Israel, this tiny strip of land in the Middle East, the entire world was shrouded in darkness and under the influence and authority and dominion of Satan and his demons. That was the world of the Old Testament, except for this one nation that was supposed to be a light to all the other nations. And then Jesus arrives, proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does he start doing? He starts casting out demons and he says to his disciples, I saw Satan fall from heaven. That Jesus' ministry showed that the period of darkness had ended, that the time of Satan's period of authority and dominion over the earth was over, that Christ, the light, had come into the world, that the darkness has been cast out from the world. And it's, again, just that indication of Jesus as a different kind of king, because we've talked about the Davidic kings. They were supposed to defend the people, protect the people, defeat the enemies. They were to secure the borders. That was one of the great promises. When you had good kings, there was going to be peace in the land. There was going to be rest from the enemies. Jesus had authority not just over those physical enemies, but against the spiritual enemies as well. You have him coming in as the light that is casting out the darkness that was covering the entire earth. And not only Jesus, but he gives it to his people in his name and by his power are given authority to defeat these demonic enemies. And so with the advent of Christ and his kingdom, you have 
defense, protection, safety, not just from the physical enemies, but the spiritual enemies who stand behind them. And that's why later Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the spiritual forces of evil and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That the behind the physical enemies are these spiritual enemies that Jesus has given his people authority over by his power. And so there's this promise. The king in the old covenant was supposed to conquer every enemy. Now you have this king who's coming and showing that he's going to conquer every enemy, including the spiritual enemies. And he was going to cast the enemy out, not just from the land of Israel, but out of the entire created world. That's the ministry that Christ came. Does that make sense? You guys, any questions? Like that? What's that? When we let the fall from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve yeah. sin. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, it was, I think, the first half, did he? What, Satan falling? No, no, I mean, to, to reverse the curse. Oh yeah, absolutely, that's exactly it. He came to reverse the curse that Adam and Eve, Eve brought when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, exactly. That's what he's doing. Um, and we see that further, if you turn over to John chapter 11, with Jesus' Jesus' authority over death and over the grave as well. Obviously, this culminates in his own resurrection. Um, but if you look at Jesus' words in John 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, it testifies to, again, the fact that this king was something different than what uh, Israel had ever seen before. John 11, beginning in verse 23, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so you see Jesus proclaiming that, of course, he would go on to call Lazarus out of the grave to resurrect Lazarus. But Jesus um, proclaims not only that he has authority over death in the grave, but that he himself is the personal embodiment of life and resurrection. That, uh, the, And this all testifies to the radical newness of his work. That he's not going to, uh, you know, like the, the kings of Israel would, you know, secure a blessed life for the people, right? When the people had a good, faithful king, they experienced the blessing of God and it was a good life, but he didn't stop death. He didn't actually give them true, abundant, everlasting life. Jesus says that he is life itself. He's not going to just supply safety and flourishing in the kingdom, but he is going to supply life itself to all of his kingdom people, fully reversing the curse of Adam. He gives that abundant life, full life, flourishing life, new life, resurrection life in him personally. And so um, the 
And Lazarus is just a preview of this. So you have Lazarus being raised up from the dead, but Jesus says to Martha that I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. And so Jesus is proclaiming that what happened to Lazarus is not going to be the way things are forever. That he came not just to you know give life to people who had already died, but to conquer death fully and finally that Lazarus resurrection is just going to be a preview of what God is going to do to death ultimately which is destroy it and destroy its power do away with it once and for all yeah the cross yeah and he does that on the cross exactly um and so this was the earthly ministry of Jesus that he is announcing the fulfillment of the old covenant in something new and better, and he's demonstrating in all of his work the newness and the improvement of what he's establishing, and he's calling people to repent of their sin and to believe in him. He is the fulfillment of everything they've been waiting for, and he is the beginning of this glorious new kingdom of heaven that he has come to establish. All good? Anything? All right, good. Turn back then, or you might not even have to turn to John 10. Um, and so Jesus, this is, you know, the, this is his ministry, this is the nature of it, and he appeals to the works that he does and his teaching, and it should have been sufficient to tell the Jews that this is the Messiah, this is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, and Jesus, Jesus holds them accountable to this, that his works should have been testimony enough to God's people that this is the Messiah, this is the one they've been waiting for, and they need to repent of their sin and follow him, believe him. John 10, beginning in verse 24. The Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you, do not, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so Jesus here is saying to the people who are, you know, clamoring around him, saying, okay, if you're the Messiah, if you're the one we've been waiting for, tell us. And Jesus says, I have told you, my works testify to it, but you don't believe. And it, part of this is because the people were expecting something different from Jesus. They couldn't handle that he was doing something new and something different from what they had been expecting. And that's why they kept asking him, okay, are you the Christ? Are you really the Christ? And Jesus is saying, I've told you, you see the works that I'm doing, you should know. And um, the fact, though, is that it was only those who are truly his. Like Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They will come to me, they will follow me, and no one is going to snatch them out of my hands. It was only those 
who had been chosen, whose hearts had been prepared by the Father, who were able to receive him, who had eyes to see what he was doing, who had ears to hear what he was preaching, who had hearts to understand who he was. Um, And so this also is going to play into, we're going to talk a little bit more next week about who is in this covenant, who are the kingdom people. The Jews were expecting this king who was going to come, restore the throne of David, and who was going to basically just kind of redo what had been done before, Jesus is saying and doing something completely different, and they can't handle that. He's saying, you know, I have sheep torn out of this fold. You you know, only my sheep will hear my voice. And these people, they keep saying, well, we're descendants of Abraham. We're circumcised. We are God's covenant people. But God here in Christ is doing something new different and unexpected if we continue on in verse 31 uh, we see the jews picked up stones again to stone him jesus answered them i've shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me the jews answered him it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself god Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So you have Jesus, again, uh, referring to his works and to his teaching that these things should have been enough to tell the Jews everything they needed to know. This should have been doubtless testimony that he was who he said he was, that he is the king come to establish a new covenant and a new kingdom. It testified to his Godhead, to his authority um, and to his arrival being the fulfillment of all the promises that the Jews had been banking on and waiting to see come to fruition. And so Jesus is testifying to his works. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we see this reality that he is fulfilling all the expectations and the promises while at the same time starting something new. You guys following? Is this all good? Good. Um, and so what is it that Jesus is establishing? So we see that he's fulfilling the promises. He says to the Jews, look at the works. I'm fulfilling everything that the prophet said I was going to do. I'm fulfilling the whole word of God. And so what was it that Jesus was establishing that was new? So the new covenant has been pledged and has been announced ever since Genesis 3.15 in the garden when God said that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. There's been this announcement, promise, and you know forward-looking anticipation of the new covenant. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He says that he's going to give him a land, offspring, kings, 
um, and that from him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So in that, you have the promise of the new covenant, that from Abraham's offspring would come this blessing to all the nations. With Moses, you have all the types under Moses, and we've talked about how all of them pointed to something better. They looked for a better deliverance than the Exodus, a better land than Canaan, a better mediator than Moses, a better ability to obey the law, the actual ability to obey God's law instead of it being these external commandments that they could never live up to, a better sacrifice than the animal sacrifices that were offered constantly on the altar. So you have all of this anticipation of something new and something better in the Mosaic Covenant. You have these types regarding David and the kingship that were anticipating this perfect covenant head, this perfect defender, this one who was going to deliver the people once and for all, who was going to bring them into their rest and conquer every enemy. And all of these anticipated something new and something better. And so you have this proclamation and this expectation of the new covenant from the very beginning throughout the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes, and Jesus announced that the long-awaited promise has finally been realized, that the Old Covenant is giving way to the New. And the good way to think about this is that the Old Covenant was pregnant with the New Covenant. And so the two are intimately connected you can't have one without the other they are they have a lot of similarities however they are two distinct covenants just like when a child is born that child is not his mother they are you know there's a distinction there there's an essential unity but also a real distinction there's continuity and there's discontinuity and so now jesus arrived and he proclaimed that the time of birth had come the new covenant was being born out of the old and yet you have jesus so he proclaims it and he shows the nature of this new kingdom and new covenant in his life and ministry but as we've talked about before a covenant cannot be ratified without sanctions, without blood. Um, you know, Hebrews, it says that a covenant cannot be established unless the death of the covenanter is pledged. We've talked about this throughout this class, that a covenant in the biblical sense needs to have sanctions attached to it. There has to be blood. Um, and so you can think back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you the land, the offspring, the blessing. And so, you know, you have this promise of the covenant. But then in Genesis 15, Abraham says, I have no child. How will I know, God, that you're going to do this? And that's when you have God appearing to Abraham as that pot of fire passing through the animal carcasses. And so now that promise is made a covenant because God attaches sanctions to it and says to Abraham, if I do not do what I promised to do, then it's my life. God pledges his own life as a surety to fulfill the promises to Abraham. God attaches sanctions, curses to himself that he will fulfill his, his word to Abraham. 
And then in Genesis 17, God has Abraham undergo the rite of circumcision. That's an oath that Abraham's taking that calls down curses on himself. If I don't keep this covenant, then I'm going to be cut off just as my flesh is being cut off. That's the, the oath sign of circumcision. So the covenant is promised to Abraham, but it's not ratified until the sanctions are attached. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with the new covenant. It's promised throughout the Old, the Old Testament. It's announced with John the Baptist and Jesus, but it is not ratified. It's not actualized until the cross, until the blood is shed. Except this is where it's different from the old. So turn over to Luke 22. So at the Last Supper, Jesus... um, pledges his body and blood as a ratification for a new covenant very similar to what God had done with Abraham. And so God, in Genesis 15, pledges his life in order to ratify the old covenant with Abraham. Jesus, at the Last Supper, pledges his life to ratify the new covenant. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So you have Jesus... Here at the Last Supper, pledging his body and his blood. And he says, this drink, this blood, is the new covenant in my blood. But like I said, this is where there's a distinction with the Old Covenant. So, unlike the Old Covenant, here with Jesus, death is not merely threatened. God's promise to Abraham was that if he did not fulfill every word, everything that he had um, pledged to Abraham, then the sanctions would come into effect. If God did not give Abraham everything he had promised, then it was on God's life. The curse would come upon God. Here with Jesus, um, the, the promise is his blood itself. It is the shedding of his blood. And this is the major difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that Jesus' blood is the covenant itself. Not just the pledge of blood, not just 
the threat of bloodshed, but the actual shedding of blood, that Jesus actually had to die for the covenant to go into effect. The old covenant went into effect without God actually dying, right? He promised that he would if he didn't fulfill the promises, but God did fulfill the promises. And so the covenant was able to go into effect without God undergoing the sanctions. The new covenant cannot go into effect unless Jesus actually dies. And that's because the purpose of the new covenant is different from the old. The purpose of the old covenant was to bring the blessing that would reverse the curse into the world. But the old covenant did nothing to actually reverse the curse of Adam. You guys following this so far? Good? Say that again. So the purpose of the old covenant was to bring the blessing into the world that would reverse the curse. But it didn't actually do anything to undo sin. It didn't actually undo Adam's sin. The promise of the new covenant is the reversal of the curse. Not just that the solution would come into the world, not just that God would provide a solution, that he actually does provide the solution to sin. He actually does the reverse the curse. The new covenant is effective to actually restore, renew, um, and you know, bring about that new heavens and new earth. That's what the new covenant promises. And that's why it's different from the old. And that's why the death of God didn't just have to be threatened. It had to be actualized. God actually did have to bear the curse, not of the old covenant, not of Israel's sin. He had to bear the curse of Adam's sin, the curse of the covenant of life that God made with Adam in the garden. That's the curse that Jesus had to bear. God actually had to shed his blood in order to end the curse and bring the blessing to the nations. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? The old covenant promised to bring the blessing into the world. The new covenant was the actual blessing of the world in Christ. Does that make sense? Um, and so that's where, that's why you, we see the old and the new as two different covenants because they effectuate different things. They make different promises and they bring different effects. And so the reality is that since Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, man's problem has been that his sinful nature, his uncleanness and his unholiness keeps him from dwelling in the presence of a holy God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden when they sinned. The Old Covenant promised a veiled, temporal, and temporary dwelling place of God among men. It promised the tabernacle and the temple that God, in a real sense, would dwell with his covenant people. But we know the problems with the Old Covenant, that even with that, the people had no direct access to God. They were still separated. There was still the veil that separated the people from the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in once a year before the actual throne of God. Just like God set the cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden that kept man from returning, so the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant guarded people from actually entering into the presence of God. 
And all the sacrifices of the old covenant, all the bloodshed, all of the animals that were slaughtered for atonement for sin, none of those things were enough to allow sinful man to dwell in the actual direct presence of a holy God. The curse of sin was still in effect. Man could never truly be made righteous, could never actually be made fit to dwell with God under the old covenant. That wasn't its purpose. And so the newness and the betterness of the new covenant is the fact that it actually accomplishes what the old covenant approximated, what the old covenant pictured. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8. The the explanation of all this. Old Covenant did a great job of picturing these realities, of getting close to these realities, of um, you know preserving a people to bring the Messiah, the Savior, into the world, but they didn't actually save the world. So Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the point in what we're saying. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Excuse me. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If then go down in verse 13... He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So what he's saying here is that the reason why the covenant of Christ, the reason why the new covenant is better than the old, the reason why why Jesus and his work is better than Moses and his work is that it actually fulfills better promises. And he quotes Jeremiah 31 as the promises that are fulfilled not by Moses, but by Christ. That God is actually going to forgive their iniquities truly. That God is going to fully and finally, once and for all, forgive sins. That the people would actually have an intimate relationship with God. When it says in Jeremiah that they will all know me, that indicates intimacy, true knowledge, and union with God, a true understanding of who God is, because we'll see him as he is. Like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, with unveiled face, we get to behold God now in Christ. And so the old covenant had no means of truly forgiving sins. It had the picture of forgiveness of sins. And the Old Covenant, I'm sorry, it had the picture of forgiving sins. Um, 
But because there was no actual way of forgiving sins, it had no way of bringing the people into full fellowship with God. But the new covenant is able to bring the people into full, true, face-to-face fellowship with God. And that's because the promises of the new covenant are secured by the one perfect sacrifice for sins, the death of the perfectly innocent Son of God. Flip over to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, um, beginning in the second half of verse 9. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so what the author of Hebrews is getting at there is that under the old covenant, you had to constantly do this picture of atonement again and again. That's why you have the continual flow of animal sacrifices to continue to you know, be this picture of this is what it takes for God to forgive sin. Blood needs to be shed. The curse of sin needs to be satisfied. Wrath needs to be satisfied against sin. But none of those were able to make the people righteous. And then you have this perfect, sinless life lived by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and this free offering of himself as a sacrifice for sins. And these secure the forgiveness of sins and all the other benefits of the new covenant that we're going to talk about next week. So whereas the old covenant, again, we talked about this when we talked about the sacrificial system, the old covenant was effective. It did make the people legally innocent with regard to the uh, the old covenant structures remember that they you know their enjoyment of the blessings their dwelling and remaining in the land was dependent on them obeying the law and when they disobeyed the law they made the sacrifice they made atonement and that was sufficient for them to be considered guiltless as far as the old covenant went but it didn't make them ultimately guiltless before God. It couldn't purify their hearts. It couldn't make them truly righteous from the inside out. And so it couldn't really make them right with God. It could make them right concerning the old covenant paradigm, but it could not make them right with God. The animal sacrifices never saved anyone. Understand that. But Christ's sacrifice does make all of its recipients ultimately, fully, and totally innocent. Christ's sacrifice ensures perfect sanctification of the heart. 
It makes us truly righteous on the inside. It makes us, it ultimately will make us perfectly sinless. We are going to talk about this next week. Um, and so unlike the old covenant, the new covenant is a completed covenant. It's done. It's been absolutely taking care of everything and so it is purely a covenant of grace the blessings of the old covenant you remember we've talked about this a lot they were corporately guaranteed god swore to abraham i will do all these things that blessing was going to come into the world the people were going to receive the land but Individually, essentially, the blessings were enjoyed by works. People had to obey God. When the people disobeyed God, that generation would receive judgment. Ultimately, they were kicked out of the land. They were disinherited. We've gone over all that. There were grace and works elements in the old covenant. It was a mixed covenant. The new covenant is completely a covenant of grace. There is absolutely... Um, it, it's entirely independent of works in any in every single way. It's totally of God. It doesn't depend on us in any way. It's not earned by us. It's not maintained by us. It's not sustained by us. We don't cooperate with it. It's a totally free covenant of grace. We receive it, and if we're in it, we get all the benefits without any works done to earn our standing in it or to stay in it. Does, do you understand that? We don't do anything to earn the blessings of the new covenant. It is a free covenant of the grace of God. And the consummation is also fully assured in the new creation. And so, yes, the old covenant, it reached its consummation with David and with Solomon. But the new covenant, it's not just the land of Israel. It's not a just a physical kingdom on the earth. If you look at verse 13 of Hebrews 10 that we just looked at, that after Jesus offered that sacrifice, satisfying, when he shed the blood of the covenant, when he ratified it, he is now seated at the right hand, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That Jesus, upon securing the covenant blessings, completing his work, shedding his blood, and so inaugurating the new covenant, it's done. And so now he is waiting as every enemy is conquered and put under his feet. And it will absolutely, assuredly happen. As certain as Christ died for our sins, as certain as we are forgiven because of his death and resurrection, so also it is certain that every enemy of Christ is going to be conquered. You also see this anticipation of the kingdom being consummated um, at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk about this more when we talk about the signs of, of, the, of the covenant, when we talk about the Lord's Supper. Um, but it does proclaim that we are anticipating, we're looking forward to this kingdom being consummated. Jesus says, I'm going to drink this with you now, and I will, I promise you, I will drink this with you again when the kingdom is consummated, in the new creation, in the kingdom of God. So the, the new covenant is a completed covenant. Its, its destination is not in doubt. It's not, it is absolutely certain that it will 
reach full consummation and everybody in it will receive all of its blessings by free grace alone, nothing dependent at all on our works. Again, we don't cooperate with it. We don't maintain our standing in the covenant. We'll talk about this more over the next few weeks, but it's important to know and hold on to this. We don't earn our way into the covenant and we don't sustain ourselves once we're in it. It's not like God lets us in by grace and now we have to make sure we stay in by works. We are in. And if we're in, every single one of the blessings belong to us. And that's because the shedding of Christ's blood as a sacrifice for sins ensure those blessings. He didn't just promise that he was going to bring blessings. He actually brought them when he shed his blood. Because he fulfilled, like we talked about last time, everything that he had pledged to the Father, he became incarnate. He lived a sinless life and he sacrificed himself for the sins of his people. So he absolutely receives everything the Father promised him. A kingdom, a people for his own possession, all the nations of the earth, resurrection, life, glory, all authority in heaven and on earth. It all belongs to Christ. His blood was sufficient. There is no doubt. There's no question. There's no uncertainty of the promised blessings for those who are in the covenant. And so when we get to next week, we're going to talk about what exactly all those blessings are and who is in the covenant, because that was the big drama with the Jews when Jesus came, who actually is in the covenant. Do you guys have any comments or questions? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your free grace. Lord, we thank you that you have done everything to secure us for all eternity. Lord, we are utterly insufficient. We cannot work our way to righteousness. Lord, we cannot make ourselves presentable before you. We cannot make ourselves holy. But Lord, you do it. You do it by your free grace. You do it by the shedding of the blood of your son who paid the full price for our sins and who has given us his full righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would be confident and have great, deep, full assurance of our standing before you. So much so, Lord God, that we can boldly and confidently proclaim this message of free grace, that we can live out all the implications of the gospel. And Lord, not only are we certain of our own standing, but we're certain, Lord God, that all the nations of the earth belong to you. We are certain that every enemy will bow before you. And so we can go and fight against the enemy with deep, abiding confidence, Lord God, that you are seated at the right hand of authority, that all your enemies are being made your footstool, Lord God. And so I pray that as your new covenant people, we would go forth with this message of liberation, of grace, mercy, this true good news of the kingdom of God, which is at hand. And Lord, it is in the name of our King Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.